Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and co-host Dr. Erica Reamer. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck Buck. Thank you, like Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 383rd edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, and brought to you today by the American Health Information Management Association, or as we know them, AHIMA. And joining me this morning as my co-host is the very, very popular Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer is the founder and the president of Erica Reamer, MD Incorporated. And good morning, Erica. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everybody. This morning, our lead story is about, well... It's about time, specifically time-basing and encoding and reporting. Well, it is about time, isn't it, that we did this? <laughs> there certainly are misconceptions about billing on time. Indeed, there are. Reporting our lead story this morning will be nationally recognized professional physician coder and auditor Terry Fletcher. And your friend Sally Stryber returns with the Talk 10 Tuesday coding report. Sally's going to be reporting on the 2020 proposed Medicare physician fee schedule. Susan Gatehouse returns to the broadcast with part two of her reporting on the need to focus technology advancements from transactional to transformational. Indeed, that's right. And you have a talkback segment this morning. I do. I'm going to discuss the recent court decision to dismiss a False Claims Act lawsuit against Dallas-based Baylor, Scott, and White Health alleging upcoding and overbilling Medicare. Good, good, good. Good for you. We have much news to report this morning, and we begin with Tim Powell, who's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is brought to you by Case Western Reserve University's Continuing Medical Education Portal and the Intensive Course in Medical Documentation, Clinical, Legal, and Economic Implications for Healthcare Providers. See the tab above for more information. Here now is Tim Powell. Thanks, Chuck. And the new patient-driven payment model, or PDPM, makes radical changes to the Medicare payment model for nursing homes. One of the largest changes is to the reimbursement rate for HIV and HIV-AIDS patients. In 2016, there were 15,807 deaths among people diagnosed with HIV in the United States. That would equate to one death for every nursing home in the country. The new PDPM system increases nursing home payments for HIV patients in two ways. First, one of the six payment categories under PDPM is for non-therapy adjustments, or NTAs. The NTA payment is composed of a base payment of $76.86 per day for rural SNFs and $80.45 per day for urban SNFs. The base rate is then multiplied by a case mix index, or CMI. Here's where the first big bump comes. The CMI runs from a low of zero to a high of 3.25. At 3.25, CMI added on equates to $260 per day as an add-on. That's a huge adjustment. The diagnosis, the NTA add-on is computed by multiplying a weighted score for a certain diagnosis. Each qualifying diagnosis has a score in between one and eight. The full 3.25 add-on requires a cumulative score for NTAs of 16. HIV has the highest score for a single diagnosis. And considering other diagnoses in the list that HIV patients are likely to have, most HIV patients will have a full NTA count of 16, leading to a maximum NTA payment. In addition, another of the six payment categories, nursing, gets an HIV add-on of 18%. This alone adds another approximately $20 per day. Does the shift from physical, occupational, and speech 
therapy driving reimbursement to certain diagnosis. Make sense? Maybe. It gets murkier as we get into diagnoses like depression that drive reimbursement. I was talking to a fellow contributor on ICD-10 Monitor, Glenn Krause, and I think he hit the real point. Nursing home medical records are generally terrible. Moreover, nursing homes were passed over when the High Tech Act bribed physicians and hospitals to move to electronic medical records. Documenting HIV is not that complicated and may only require carrying over the diagnosis from the acute hospital record. Many of the other diagnoses required under PDPM will have to come from and agree to medical records. The problem is exacerbated by software currently used to compile the minimum data set or MDS that drives nursing home billing. Most MDS systems are point and click and MDS coordinators may, may click on things that they believe to be true that are not captured in the medical record. Nursing homes that fail to improve on their medical records are going to face huge losses in revenue and face compliance issues. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tim, very much. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert and an ICD-10 Monitor National Correspondent. This is Tuesday. It's August the 27th, and you're listening to the 383rd edition of Talk 10 Tuesday Standby. Are you planning to reach your career goals and position yourself as a leader in the industry by earning the CCS credential? Professionals with AHIMA's industry-regarded Certified Coding Specialist credential demonstrate tested data quality and integrity skills and a mastery of coding proficiency. Consider AHIMA's virtual exam prep to guide you through all seven domains you need to master for the exam. Purchase the bundle and receive the on-demand webinar series, virtual interactive learning sessions, exam prep book, and the exam voucher, all for one low price. Learn more at ahima.org certification and plan to attend the October 17th virtual interactive learning session. Here now with the Talk 10 Tuesday Coding Report is Sally Stryver. Good morning, Sally. Good morning, Chuck. We are going to have a look today at the Medicare Physician Fee Schedule 2020 proposed rule. So after the release of the 2019 final rule, the AMA went to work and created the AMA CPT Workgroup on Evaluation and Management Codes. This workgroup created an alternative approach to the structure CMS reported in the 2019 final rule. Based on this work, a summary of recommendations was officially adopted by the AMA in April of this year and is actually set to be implemented for CPT effective 1-1-2021. But the story gets better. CMS also reviewed the work of the AMA CPT committee and found that the majority of the changes were to their liking and have submitted these changes in the proposed 2020 rule. So here's the summary of some of the ENM changes affecting new patient visits and established patient visits to be effective in 2021. First, 99201 will be deleted. The reason? 99201 and 202 are both associated with straightforward medical decision making. History and physical examination will no longer be parameters for level of service selection. It will be left to the provider to document these appropriately. Medical decision-making or time will now be the new determining factors in level of service selection. But the proposed definition of time is different from anything we've known. This includes total face-to-face -face time and non-face-to-face -face time spent in the patient care encounter and the act activities surrounding it. Some notable changes, the time taking to prepare to see the patient, reviewing test results and the like, the time to order medications, tests, and procedures. 
big one here, documenting clinical information in the electronic or other health records. So the time to document now counts and time for care coordination. Also, medical decision-making has been reconfigured. It looks something new, like if you took all three components of the medical decision-making sections and reformatted them into the risk table. And here's some notable improvements. Each unique test, order, or document counts as something you've done. So that means if you do a CBC and a urinalysis, you get credit for two lab results. Big deal, all of these things that people have been asking for for years. Another thing that's huge is that definitions have been provided for the elements listed in this new um, medical decision-making table for greater clarity. We'll still have two to five visits um, levels in the new patient visits and one to five levels in the established patient visits, each with its own payment rate. They've added two new prolonged services codes, one that will only be associated with time-based billing and can only be used with 99205 and 99215. That's, that code is 99XXX today. There's another code, a HCPCS, GPC1X, and that description will be revised to actually support this as an add-on code to go on um, in care encounters involving single, serious, and really complex conditions. Nobody really knows what that means yet, so more to come. The work RVUs are also increased in 75% of the remaining nine codes and the others stay stable. So it's really important that you read the proposed changes and read the work done by the AMA. It's all there in the website. There's still work to be done, but let your voice be heard. Back to you, Erica. Thanks, Sally. It sounds like they're making some changes that actually are good for once. That was Sally Striver, President of Practical Coding Solutions. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And thank you very much, Sally. And by the way, you can read Sally's excellent reporting on this very important subject in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor News. Our Tuesday focus is how data for clinical and business intelligence is the key to clinical documentation improvement transformation. Here now with our Tuesday focus report is Susan Gatehouse, and good morning, Susan. Thank you, Chuck, and good morning to all. Thank you for joining us for Talk 10 Tuesday. Last week, I discussed the need for transformational change within healthcare organizations. In other words, tracking, trending, and analyzing day-to-day transactions produces data that provides necessary information to target specific areas for needed improvement. Without data, we would not have the ability to plan or execute in a strategic manner. This morning, I'll expand on this theory a bit while using CDI as an example. Historically, CDI uh, specialists swiftly maneuvered floor by floor, basically hunting down records, and reviewing records, medical records, generating appropriate queries, and trending information for physician education and feedback. The onset of the EHR presented ready access to patient records, having a profound effect on the timely execution of generating a query and receiving feedback from the physician. Ultimately, the days in accounts receivable decreased and often a hospital's casemates index increased. The process improvement exchange occurred among physicians and CDI specialists. At times, coders were included as well as case management workers um, as well as physician advisors at times. This practice 
seems beyond prehistoric when we look through modern-day lens of healthcare. As technology and healthcare regulations alter the healthcare environment, the function of CDI will continue to evolve. There's a tremendous opportunity to expand the CDI specialist role not only to improve physician documentation, but also to decrease clinical denials, as well as have an impact on quality rating. Business data intelligence, in other words, big data, is a proactive resource to support expansion of CDI. For example, organizations are increasing, receiving increasing numbers of clinical denials, which often are sent to CDI for rebuttal or correction. Tracking and training the data related to clinical denials affords CDI the ability to educate physicians on the nuances of certain conditions. This intelligence can lead to open dialogue while focusing on certain physicians, payers, and diagnosis. And often, the result is a decrease in clinical denials. This data is transferred from revenue cycle management to clinical documentation on a transitional basis, or transactional basis, rather. Um, this information is analyzed, and conversations across key departments start to occur. This is the beginning stages of transformation, is collaboration and sharing of information. Transformation requires continuous evaluation and monitoring. Denials change, as do many other aspects of healthcare. For example, most of us that deal with clinical denials can um, easily say that we uh, deal with renal failure, respiratory failure, malnutrition, and we move on to the next slide of denials that may come our way. Establishing a consistent feedback loop, targeting issues, and improving accountability while promoting improvements prompts change. As services are shifting from inpatient to outpatient, CDI specialists are often found in high-dollar, high-volume outpatient centers or hospital-based centers. Namely, one that comes to mind is infusion. Um, by improving documentation to support the reason for treatment or for infusion, the movement of CDI staff in high-volume, high-dollar clinics has secured notable financial improvement by decreasing medical necessity and other clinical denials. The bottom line is aligning business and clinical intelligence allows continuous evaluation of service lines in need of advancement and potential CDI expansion. Daily transactional data provides the needed information to promote transformation for targeted areas. Like most things in life, change takes time. With the right people, processes, and data, transformation should be an organic outcome. Back to you, Erica. Thanks, Susan. That was fascinating. That was Susan Gatehouse. Susan is the CEO of Axia Solutions. Chuck? Thanks, Erica, and thank you, Susan. And you can read part two of Susan's reporting on this fascinating subject in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor News. And coming up, Terry Fletcher reports our lead story this morning. It's about time. And later, Erica Reamer discusses her reaction to the recent False Claims Act lawsuit involving Baylor Scott and White. This is Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. The 2020 Inpatient Prospective Payment System has new codes and coding concepts that you must master in order to improve your coding performance. Along with expected changes to operating room designations for multiple procedures codes, these updates put the financial stability of many facilities at risk. 
mastering the new concepts, codes, designations, and MSDRG changes will be crucial for compliance and proper reimbursement. And with so little time left, let ICD-10 Monitor get you and your team up to speed with an exclusive three-part coders webcast series. Join ICD-10 Monitor for these high-impact coding workshops during the ICD-10 Monitor Summer Celebration of Ipspalooza. Now available on demand. Save $30 when you enter the coupon code TUESDAY. This morning our lead story is about time, especially time-based E&M coding and reporting. With more on this important and timely story is Terry Fletcher. And good morning, Terry. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. In the first half of 2019, I began to see a trend of many providers, physicians, and NPPs attempting to use time to support their office and hospital E&M visits. With this trend came a great amount of noncompliance, and I found that a large percentage of records did not meet the documentation guideline rules for using time as their support of the E&M encounter. With payers, including Medicare, looking to find any reason to audit your records, and take back money, it was time to make sure that you're using time, if you're using time as the controlling factor to support your code, that you need to make sure you're clear on the rules, the guidelines, and how, they're be- how you're being scored if audited, or it could be detrimental to your practice. So consider this a memo to all physicians and providers that document time in the patient's health record and that use time as the support of their level of service. So first, when documenting a patient encounter, Medicare suggests that time should be the last option in selecting a level of service. Funny how that will change in 2021, but this is 2019. When using time, it is incorrect to choose a level of service that merely states patient was in clinic for 25 minutes or total time was 60 minutes. Those statements that may assist in time-based scenarios, but there first needs to be a clear understanding that when time can be used to support your encounter at what needs to be in the documentation. Per CPT, professional edition, page 10, right column, number three entry, When counseling and or coordination of care dominates more than 50% of the encounter with the patient and or family, face-to-face time in the office or outpatient setting on the floor or unit time, then time shall be considered the key or controlling factor to qualify for a particular level of service. And the extent of counseling and coordination of care must be documented in the medical record. So if a physician elects to report the level of care based on counseling and or coordination of care, the following must be in the patient's medical record in order to report it based on time. The total length of time, start and stop time of the ENN visit. That is not the time in and out of the patient's exam room. It's when did the provider step in and step out. Evidence that more than half of the total time of the ENN visit was spent in counseling or coordination of care and the content of the counseling and coordination of care during that ENM visit must be documented. That is one issue that comes up a lot in audit, is that the time may be appropriate, but there's no evidence of the discussion or the reason for the counseling. While some CPT codes allow the level of service to be time-based, it's not acceptable for office visits to simply state, again, 35 minutes was spent discussing patient treatment. You have to have support and medical necessity in the in detail of the context of the conversation and any decisions made or actions that will result based on this counseling. So when you use time as 50% of the total visit, this is where your EMR can be helpful. It's perfectly acceptable to have a drop-down screen in your EMR that auto-populates a statement saying total time of the visit was and then 50% or more was spent counseling. But then a dictated or free type paragraph also needs to be added of that discussion some detail. Medical necessity is the key. If you look in your CPT book, you'll note that 99213 lists a typical time of 15 minutes, while 99214 has a typical time of 25 minutes. 
In order to determine whether you can code for time as the key factor, you need to answer the following questions. A, how much time did you spend or did you, did you say, did I spend either counseling or coordination of care for the patient? B, how much time did I spend in total for the whole visit, including time spent providing key components and time spent counseling and or coordination of care? And then C, what percentage of B is A? If the answer to C is equal to less than 50%, then you use the key components of history, exam, and medical decision-making to determine your level of service to report. But if the answer to C is greater than 50%, then you can use time as your key and controlling factor as long as it's well-documented. Also keep in mind when you use time as your qualifier, use common sense on your patient load for that day. Reporting 10 level fives in a three-hour period when you have a 20-patient office visit doesn't make office, I should say 20-minute office, uh, doesn't make sense to anyone, especially the auditor. You will limit yourself on how many patients you can see in that time period. For more instructions and examples on this topic, please see my article today on ICD10Monitor.com. Back to you, Erica. Thanks, Terry. That was Terry Fletcher. Terry is a nationally recognized professional physician coder and auditor. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And Terry, thank you so very much. Now's the time for a very popular segment here at Talk 10 Tuesday. It's called Talk Back, and it features our very own Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer, what's on your mind this morning? Well, Chuck, my good friend and coder extraordinaire, Colleen Deegan, texted me right before last week's Talk 10 Tuesday broadcast, asking me what I thought about the Baylor false claims case. Having been working on preparing some presentations for the Oregon HEMA annual conference in October, I had my head under a rock and didn't know what she was talking about. Many of my best topics come as questions or suggestions from you, our listeners. It's also embarrassing that Glenn Krauss had used that for the topic of his lead article, and I hadn't read it yet. I have had time to catch up, and here are my thoughts from the motion to dismiss. And I think we have actually a um, link to it if you want to sort of go look at it yourself. Um, It may surprise some of you that requests for reimbursement for resources utilized in taking care of Medicare patients falls under the False Claims Act, which says, knowingly presenting false or fraudulent claims to the government for reimbursement is illegal. The court document gave a simplistic but accurate explanation of the DRG system and stated that the allegation was that the hospital and CDI program were engaged in a air quotes, scheme, close quotes, to hunt for MCCs. The defendants also allegedly distributed tip sheets that provided doctors guidance on how to clinically document diagnoses in a way that is codable by CMS, which I actually suspect is accurate. The complaint stated that these documentation clarification sheets revealed an intent to steer providers to options that would be counted as CCs or MCCs. The next paragraph in the motion to dismiss is all sorts of crazy. It alleges that the defendants purposely and unnecessarily placed patients on post-operative ventilator support, enabling them to code for the MCC of acute respiratory failure. Obviously, they weren't privy to the quality PSI committee who would have been tearing their hair out and gnashing their teeth. I guess I am not surprised that sepsis didn't make the top three list. 
It most often defines the DRG, not serves as an MCC. I'm sure all of you could guess the top three, encephalopathy, respiratory failure, and severe malnutrition. Here's my feeling about comparing your hospital to national benchmarks. First, who says they are doing it right? Secondly, if you have a robust and ethical CDI program such that you are capturing comorbid conditions appropriately and your patient population is sick, as one might expect the Baylor's system's patient population to be, you very well might have a higher than average number of MCCs and CCs. Thirdly, I'd like to be sure that the folks doing the statistical analysis finding significant coding differences aren't working on commission. I figure 15% of $61.8 million is a lot. In the discussion, they say, quote, such a scheme, that is the CDI program, is not in and of itself one to submit false claims, close quote, but it could also be consistent with a process to, quote, improve hospital revenue through accurate coding of patient diagnoses in a way that will be appropriately recognized and reimbursed by CMS commensurate with the type and amount of services rendered, close quote. In 2008, the final rule had a passage which I quote to providers who are concerned that changing their documentation could be construed as fraud. It says, quote, CMS does not believe that there is anything inappropriate, unethical, or otherwise wrong with hospitals taking full advantage of coding opportunities to maximize Medicare payment that is supported by the documentation in the medical record, close quote. This was essentially the argument that the defendants posed as well, and it seemed to work. And I'm glad. Judge Ezra concluded that the defendants were taking steps to improve the accuracy and consistency of their medical documentation and coding so as to align it with the terminology that CMS would recognize and reimburse appropriately, and he dismissed the case with prejudice. My conclusion is the one I always have, Chuck. Tell the story, tell the truth, and make the patient look as sick and complex in the medical record as they do in real life. Truth will prevail. And that's my talk back for this week. Chuck, thanks. Thank you, Erica, very much. Excellent talk back segment. We have asked our panelists to stick around for a roundtable discussion on today's Talk 10 Tuesday. And so let us begin with a couple of questions. Terry Fletcher, could you tell us a little bit about your upcoming story that's going to be appearing next month about coding from various sources? We have had some issues recently, not just in offshore accounts, but also in the United States, of coders and billers and the like coding from social media, taking their cues from uh, internet sources that are not verified. It would be kind of like everyone who's out there just uh, diagnosing themselves by going to the internet instead of going to a physician. So you want to be careful when you do that, and we're going to have a segment that discusses the accuracy or the non-accuracy of not getting your codes from a uh, reputable source and an authoritative reference. Very good, Terry. Thanks very much. We look forward to your article. That's going to be coming up next month. 
uh, a story about how coders are going to social media and other platforms to find out the exact codes that they need to have for their procedures. Thanks again. That's going to be a wrap for our 383rd edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. And I want to thank our panelists today, Terry Fletcher, whom you just heard, Susan Gatehouse, Tim Powell, Sally Stryber, and of course, our co-host, Dr. Erica Reamer. No matter where you are, you can always listen to Talk 10 Tuesday podcast anytime, anywhere, on any device, and it's absolutely free. You can listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and when you do, give us a rating, give us a review, tell us what you think. I'm Chuck Buck reporting for ICD-10 Monitor and Talk 10 Tuesday. Thank you very much for being with us. Have a compliant Labor Day weekend. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.